I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the People's Liberation Army. On August 1st, the PLA marked the 95th anniversary of its founding. As it nears its 100th anniversary, the PLA is taking a growing role in China's geopolitics. It has undertaken expansive modernization efforts, including enhancing its missile capabilities and increasing investments in the PLA Navy. Symbolizing China's growing military might, the Fujian aircraft carrier China's Third was launched earlier this summer. The PLA is also increasingly visible in East Asia. PLA fighter jets now fly sorties near and through Taiwan's air defense identification zone, and PLA installations have appeared on disputed islands in the South China Sea. But perhaps catching the most attention are the recent PLA exercises against Taiwan. How is the PLA developing and modernizing? How should we view the PLA exercises against Taiwan? Joining me to discuss these questions is Rod Lee, director of research at the China Aerospace Studies Institute at Air University. Prior to joining Cassie, Mr. Lee served as an analyst with the United States Navy covering Chinese naval forces. Well, Rod, thank you very much for joining us today. No, it's a pleasure to be here, Bonnie. It's certainly an interesting time for us to be having this discussion. So I'm looking forward to our discussion. Definitely interesting, and maybe before we get to the more interesting question of what is happening in the Taiwan Strait, I do want to get a little bit of background in. So, as you know,、uh, this week we celebrated, or rather, China celebrated the ninety-fifth、uh, founding of the People's Liberation Army. Can you give us a little bit of background about the PLA and how did the PLA get to where it is now? Yeah, so、uh, the the founding of the People's Liberation Army or PLA. They mark their birthday, their anniversary on August first, what they call Bai Day, and that's a, a historical reference to the Nanchang Uprising. And to provide the historical context for really all of that,、uh, in the early 1920s, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, is actually working together with the Nationalist Party, the the Kuomintang or KMT, in in an effort to defeat warlord elements. In China, so they're working together politically. They're also working together militarily to to defeat these warlords,、uh, and this works relatively fine until 1927,、uh, where communist elements manage to get workers to rise up against warlord elements in Shanghai in April 1927, and this is in support of a broader northern expedition. But this is a worrying incident for the nationalists. They see the communists as being able to galvanize populations in in an effort to achieve political objectives, and the the nationalists, the KMT, finds this unacceptable, and they begin a purge of the communist elements within their ranks. This starts in Shanghai, but it kind of broadens out beyond into several other areas. Now, the CCP doesn't take this line down, and they decide that they need to. Stand up to this effort to purge the CCP from the political scene, and they resolve to rise up and engage in an armed uprising in Nanchang, which is a city in sort of southern-ish China. And this occurs on August first, nineteen twenty-seven. It's followed by subsequent、uh, two additional uprisings. So there's a number of uprisings that the communists lead against the nationalists. Now, what does this all sort of culminate to? Is that these uprisings mark a indication that the communists view political change through the lens of armed 
confrontation. So August 1st serves for the PLA as an ideological reminder and the importance of the PLA in getting the CCP to where it is today. If they did not engage in this armed uprising, there's this narrative that the CCP would have died in 1927. So the importance of the PLA in, in CCP uh, survival, the importance of the PLA in terms of the status of an organization that's broadly aimed at achieving CCP objectives. So through the next several decades, the PLA is helping achieve political power for the CCP. So that's sort of number two. And number three, as I already referenced, this identity of using armed struggle as a way of achieving political objectives. Prior to that, the communists had sort of viewed working together as a KMT as a viable option. That's no longer the case. So August 1st and the anniversary for the PLA is very much about ideology and identity rather than uh, military history. So that's why that's kind of the historical basis of where we got this August 1st founding of the PLA. Thank you, Ron. So I wanted to move a bit more to the present and ask you about how do you view Xi's relationship with the PLA? You just mentioned that the PLA is very much in support of the party. So how much is the PLA supporting Xi Jinping and how much how popular is he with the PLA? So Xi Jinping has taken a, a fairly vested interest into the PLA compared to at least his predecessor, Hu Jintao. Uh, and I think it's worth noting here quickly what Xi Jinping's actual personal relationship with the PLA is. We sometimes, the Chinese Communist Party narrative would like to espouse Xi Jinping's connection as being a PLA man, if you will, himself. There's a counter narrative of saying Xi Jinping really didn't serve in the military. Uh, the truth, as it usually is, is somewhere in the middle. So I'd like to capture that. Uh, there's really three key touching points that Xi Jinping has with the PLA in terms of his own history. So point number one is Xi Jinping did in fact serve as a uniformed member of the PLA in the early 1980s. He served as a staff officer in the Central Military Commission's general office. Uh, this is an organization that essentially acts as an information clearing house for the Central Military Commission, which is sort of the high command of the People's Liberation Army. So he serves there for roughly two to three years in a uniform capacity. And it's not particularly clear, at least in a public accounts, what he did there. But it's worth noting that this is the aftermath of the 1979 war that China embarked against Vietnam. And we know that during the same time period, various elements of the Central Military Commission are writing and disseminating after action reports about what went well and what didn't go so well during that war. So Xi Jinping is in the right place in the right time to see these after actions running around uh, CMC headquarters in his position as a staff officer at the general office. So he's there at the right time. It's unclear how involved he was in that discussion, though. So that's touching point number one. Number two is probably a little more obscure, but I think is very important, which is his wife, Peng Liyuan, is a PLA member as well, or was. Uh, she was a member of the political work apparatus of the PLA. She was a singer and therefore performed for the PLA. In fact, during the skirmishes that the PLA had with the Vietnamese in the 80s along the border, she actually went forward into the front lines to perform allegedly, according to PLA Press. And so she's part of this political work apparatus as a uniformed member of the PLA. And I think as, as those, the audience that are listening, who are spouses of current service members or retired service members, they can sort of 
resonate with the idea that you might not be a member of the service yourself, but you have some connection there. Uh, and so th they're married in 1987. Uh, Peng Li Ren remains active in that community. She actually performed for PLA personnel who responded to the Tiananmen massacre in June 1989. There's a great photo of her performing for those troops. So there is this odd connection there of Xi Jinping is indirectly connected with the political work system. And the third one is in his capacity as holding various party positions in Fuzhou and then Zhejiang in the 1990s and to the 2000s, he technically does have a role as a first party secretary of reserve units uh, in Fujian at the time. And so this is 1990s, notably in 1996, we have the third Taiwan Strait crisis. To the extent that he's actually involved, it's unclear. But I'm willing to bet that this had a formative impact on how he views a PLA uh, in his own mind. And therefore, he likely, in my mind, feels like he has some insight into the deficiencies of the PLA at the time and where it had room to grow. Uh, so that, I think, is an important way to capture his personal connection. Uh, and then in terms of popularity, I think we need to be upfront about a caveat that Public views in China about how the PL or how they view the PLA is, is not something that there's no polls discussing this. There's not a lot of open discourse. Uh, information control is pretty aggressive. The bottom line to that question is the general view in China is they probably have a generally favorable view of the PLA. Or I, I should say, sorry, your, your question was what was Xi Jinping, what is the PLA's view of Xi Jinping? The general view of Xi Jinping within the appeal is probably positive. And it's really down to two reasons. Number one is she has curated, especially the senior echelons of the PLA. The way that officer promotions occur within the PLA is that the Central Military Commission chairman gets a final say on anyone who's being promoted at the general or flag level. So if you're a general officer or an admiral, Xi Jinping needs to give you some stamp of approval. And he's had that stamp of approval since being the CMC chairman uh, starting in 2012. So he's had a decade to sort of curate the senior echelons of the PLA of people that generally support him. So that certainly helps. There's also a secondary component of curation in that there is a political uh, screening component for both conscripts and listed members joining the PLA and officers. It's closely held what the content is of that political screening, but we know it exists. And so presumably a little bit of screening can occur there. The second one, anecdotally, I have heard from PLA officers, junior PLA officers, this was years ago, admittedly, that they looked favorably upon many of the changes that Xi Jinping was enacting, especially on the anti-corruption side. These junior officers were having to pay into the system, but not get anything out of it. And so the prospect of not having to pay into a corrupt system is something that they look favorably upon. So I think those two reasons drive us towards a positive view. There is a potential for things that will drive it towards the opposite direction, negative views within the PLA about Xi Jinping. This is highly speculatory, but it's worth noting. There might be some disconnect about Things that aren't going right in the PLA, they might feel inclined to bl blame Xi Jinping, 
But at the same time, they could say, this is a result of my immediate superior. Xi Jinping is ultimately just issuing broad guides. It's not really his fault. But it's unclear that could be a dynamic. The second one is bureaucracies will be bureaucracies. The PLA is an organization. It's a bureaucracy like anything else. And bureaucracies often don't like change. And Xi Jinping brought a lot of change. And that might not be looked favorably upon, at least in parts of the PLA. And then lastly, I talked about Xi Jinping's historical sort of personal involvement in the PLA. At the end of the day, though, two or three years in the general office and wearing a double hat as a party secretary doesn't really cut it, I suspect, in most military minds. And so I can imagine where there is some part of the PLA that says this guy is some you know, party elite who's coming in and being, frankly, very involved in the modernization of the PLA. How much does he really know about military modernization issues? They may not think so. So it's possible these are some dynamics at play, but given the information environment, it's hard to say for certain. Thank you, Ron. I definitely want to ask you about uh, the PLA reforms and how they're progressing. But before that, I do want to ask you, how did you view China's celebration of the PLA's birthday this past August? Was there anything extraordinary or out of the normal? Was there anything that we should be paying attention to, given what we're seeing now in the Taiwan Straits? So the way that the PRC celebrates the PLA's anniversary uh, changes year by year. And so they typically, every year, there is an annual celebration. Local government officials will go out to visit units and veterans and sort of gift things. That's pretty typical. But on five-year intervals, Xi Jinping will attend personally, along with most, if not all, of the Politburo Standing Committee, an annual Bai dinner, PLA anniversary dinner in Beijing. There is a dinner every year that sort of prominent members of the military as well as international military attaches are in, invited to. That obviously hasn't happened since COVID in 2020. So this year was actually the first time they had an annual dinner since 2019. So COVID intervened and sort of prevented that from happening. And this was also the first time Xi Jinping and the Politburo Standing Committee as a whole attended one since 2017. So there's that significant five-year intervals that also happen to line up with part, uh, party congresses are bigger affairs. There's a little bit more fanfare associated with that. There was no parade, obviously. The one thing that I think is worth mentioning or worth highlighting uh, in terms of this year's celebration is the highlighting of Xi Jinping as a prominent figure, which has obviously been of case for years now. But... If you look at the speeches issued in the 2017 Bai dinner, there's still some callback to the older generation of CCP leadership, Deng Xiaoping, uh, Mao Zedong, even Jiang Zemin. This year, we saw no such references. It's very monolithically foresighted on Xi Jinping himself and the ideology and sort of talking points he's espoused. So this year, it's very much highlighting progress we've made since PLA reform started in, in 2016, 2017, and progress since Xi Jinping took power in 2012. So looking at that five to 10 year window in a lot of push, especially on the image side, sort of recreating a PLA that looks very different. And this sounds very superficial, but image matters a great deal 
uh, public image matters a great deal to the CCP. This is a relatively trivial thing to us, maybe in the United States, but part of this 95th anniversary was revealing a new image for the PLA, issuing new uniforms, new camouflage patterns. All of this fanfare that we saw, not just in August, but in 2022, I think is associated with a, an attempt to rebrand the PLA as a modern military molded in Xi Jinping's image. So I think that's the theme we're getting of, of this year's 95th anniversary of the founding of the PLA. As you look at the progress that the PLA has made during Xi Jinping's time, and particularly, as you mentioned, since the PLA reforms, what are the most important reforms that you're tracking? How do you view the progress of the reforms? And do you believe the progress that the PLA tells that they have made since then? So what I'm tracking right now is what the PLA sort of informally calls the third phase of reform. So as a quick background of the ongoing reforms, the PLA commenced its series of military reforms starting in 2015. Uh, so in 2015 and 2016, it's sort of phase one, what the PLA called above the neck reforms. And that was changes to how the CMC is structured, the command relationship between the CMC and the military services, the creation of the theater commands, the creation of the strategic support force, all of those big picture things occurred in phase one above the neck reforms. 2017, 2018, we have what they call below the neck reforms. These were changes within the services, typically to military unit structure. Uh, so the army shifted towards a combined arms brigade structure in an effort to push, not join this, but combined arms. Uh, the Air Force unified on, a, on an air defense-based structure. There were fewer changes in the Navy, but still some changes to clarify the divide between near and far seas. So that was 2017, 2018. 2019 was supposed to be the commencement of phase three, which was the changes to policy in what we would broadly consider the software, the PLA. But the PLA was honest, frankly, with the United States and said in 2019. So all of these reforms were actually supposed to be done in 2020. When they first announced them in 2015, they said, we're going to be done in 2020. In 2019, there's sort of a, a moment of honesty where they say, all right, we're, we're sort of behind and they pushed the completion that date back really for those phase three policy and regulation forms to 2021, 2022. But that was before COVID hit. And so 2019, they push it back. Obviously, COVID hits in 2020 and things get delayed even more. Uh, a great example is the PLA was going to shift from a once a year conscription cycle where it normally occurred in September and shifted it to a twice a year cycle where it occurs now both in September, but also once in March during the spring. This was supposed to happen in 2020, but in 2020, all of, in March of 2020, all of China is essentially locked down. Much of China is locked down. So that didn't occur. Uh, so a lot of this phase three reform, a lot of the reforms associated with that got pushed back. And that's where we are right now. Reform isn't done. We're seeing a lot of the the policy changes occurring as we speak. This year alone, they they implemented about a half dozen guiding policy documents for the PLA. I think the most recent one of note was a, a new uh, outline on non-war military activities. This is sort of what we in the United States would consider joint doctrine. So they're still engaging in some pretty substantive reforms on the policy side. And that's 
where I'm paying attention to is looking at what types of policy they're, they're changing and what types of policies they're enacting. And the downside to all of this is that rarely do they actually release the material. So they say we have a new outline on non-war military activities. In late 2020, they issued a joint operations outline, which is sort of their equivalent of our joint publication 3-0 but we don't actually see the documents itself. So it's really hard to gauge how they progressed and say, okay, they've got this new set of joint operations concepts. How does that compare to what they were writing about 10, 15 years ago? We had what they were talking about 10, 15 years ago. We don't have what they're talking about today. So it's hard to make a comparison there. I think the best that we can do is say, where are they making changes? And the answer to that is frankly everywhere. I mentioned on the Operational concepts, we're seeing pretty substantive changes. Uh, we're also seeing changes in new uh, guiding policy on how they conduct professional military education, personnel management, talent acquisition, regular material acquisition, internal regulations, the whole gambit. I mean, this is probably the most substantial overhaul of the way the PLA does business since the early 1990s. There was a minor sort of overhaul in the early 2000s under Hu Jintao, late Jiang Zemin era. But this is really the largest overhaul they've seen since the early 1990s. So that's where my focus is today. It just happens to not be a particularly easy thing to make a good judgment of how much progress are they making. All we can say is that they are recognizing deficiencies in things that they've identified, personnel issues, for example, training quality, uh, they issued a new training guidance, a series of new training guidance starting in 2018. So we know they're recognizing problems. They're trying to fix them to the extent that these guiding policy documents are actually affecting change, though, and creating combat effectiveness. That's really hard to tell, especially purely looking at what the PLA is putting out there for us. So, Rod, you mentioned that these reforms are pretty comprehensive and wholesale. So as you look at this, some experts have mentioned that given these reforms across the board, it's likely to have at least a short-term impact on the PLA's readiness. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think it, it is impacting how the PLA might respond in the next couple of years, or is the impact not that substantial? So I think that would have been a valid response, the idea that reforms would affect PLA readiness for large-scale operations. That might have been true in the immediate aftermath, let's say in the 2017, maybe 2018 time period. I don't think that's the case today. I think the PLA has likely worked out many of the command and control issues that might have been confused in the early stages of reform, uh, may have hampered overseeing large-scale operations. I think a lot of that confusion has been worked out. Uh, it's also worth noting that Impact to readiness is relative. Prior to reform, the PLA was actually expected to enact many of the structural changes we saw them enact in 2016 through 2018, except they were supposed to do it under a wartime environment in a very compressed time frame. There was no joint command structure in the PLA prior to 2016. Uh, they had a military, an army heavy command structure. Rarely did the Navy, Air Force, second artillery work together in a, and there was no real hard and fast training requirement at the joint level. So they were expected to do all of this, learn how to, and then conduct joint operations in a very complicated environment when they had 
basically very little to no practice. And they're expected to do this in wartime conditions. So it would have been a very painful process for them to have done that. And they recognized that. And they said, well, why don't we do these changes now in a peacetime condition when we can set the pace of change and we can see where the problems are and work them out when it doesn't really matter so that when the flag drops and we have to conduct large-scale military operations, we've worked out all the issues and we don't have to sort of figure out how to do this for the first time. So I think it was very quickly after the reforms occurred that we would have seen a net benefit to their ability to conduct large-scale operations. I don't think there was any real substantive effect on readiness in even the short to medium term. So as you know, General Milley has recently commented that the PLA has become much more aggressive and dangerous, not only to the United States, but to many of our allies and partners in the region. As you're watching the PLA develop, as you watch the PLA reforms, how, how much have you seen China become more aggressive against its neighbors in the past couple of years, particularly after the reforms? So anecdotally, we have obviously been seeing a lot more aggressive PLA activity, not even necessarily since reform occurred. It's frankly since Xi Jinping took power in 2012. What happens right around then, we start seeing the, the stand-up of the East China Sea ADIS. We see island reclamation that you guys have been tracking very intricately starting in 2014. This all really starts under Xi Jinping. Uh, maybe some of the concepts are being built under Hu Jintao, but it all really starts under Xi Jinping. And reform probably clarifies some of those concepts and their ability to execute them. But I suspect the general trend line is, is we are seeing more and more what we would perceive as aggressive. The PRC would probably not argue it's not, but more aggressive activity. It's hard to say, though, on a year by year basis. I suspect when General Milley says that we're seeing a lot more, I take him at, at face value that we are seeing a lot more activity. But there is a possibility this is probably not the case, but we're, we're more attuned to the fact that these are out there now. There's more reporting out there. Prior to the Taiwan Ministry of National Defense putting out actual PLA flights that are occurring around them every single day, we wouldn't have known that those types of activities were occurring. If there isn't the public reporting that's occurring that says they're happening, they could be happening. We just would have no idea in this public discourse, in this public environment. But... I still suspect there's, we're seeing a lot more of harassment-like activity, uh, the PLA trying to confront the U.S. more frequently at a greater scale, perhaps even in, in more areas, not just in Taiwan Strait, but in broader sort of inside First Island chain. Uh, so I'm assuming that is what the general is referring to, although I don't want to put words in his mouth. So yes, I, I think that general sense is, is the case, and it's occurring across the board, right? So we're... We're seeing increased flights. We're seeing examples that pilots are being more aggressive. I think the most notable examples recently are the harassing of, of Canadian and Australian aircraft that happened earlier this year. There's supposedly an incident with a C-130, a U.S. C-130 this summer. These are likely being directed by up echelon and saying you should be being a little more confrontational with the United States and their partners and allies. And this is certainly a shift from previous years, I should say previous years in a big sense, a decade ago maybe, where were there dangerous encounters that occurred then? Yeah, there were. But I suspect some of those encounters may have been accidental 
Whereas now I suspect a lot of them are being directed from higher on up, although it's unclear how much leeway is being given to the operators. So how confrontational, be confrontational with the Americans is being interpreted at lower echelons. That might be an explaining factor to some of the things we're seeing. But in general, I think there is this top-down directive to be more confrontational uh, in sort of defending what they perceive as sovereign rights and territorial airspace. So in terms of being more confrontational, more assertive, I think we have a pretty clear recent case of that in terms of the developing, I guess some of us already are starting to call it the fourth Taiwan Strait crisis. So what are your thoughts on what's happening there? Um, how do you perceive uh, PLA activities? Yeah, so I'd like to first caveat that I, I'm fairly certain that the term Taiwan Strait crisis is, is an American term. Uh, I don't think the PRC or the PLA refers to historically all these incidences as crises. So whether we should call it a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis now that we're aware that we should perhaps be on the same wavelength of what the PLA, what the PRC is seeing, I don't think they necessarily perceive this as a potential war. But uh, I accept it is, is that the PLA is engaging in some pretty extensive military activities. And as I'm looking through what they're doing around Taiwan, you know, we're seeing closure areas associated with rocket forces firing missiles around and over Taiwan. The army is engaging in long-range uh, rocket artillery fires into the Taiwan Strait. We're seeing an increased number of crossings into the Taiwan Strait by the Air Force. I'm fairly certain there's, there's Navy things running around. We're seeing cyber attacks against Taiwan websites. Uh, this is all very frankly kind of textbook PLA deterrence activities. Uh, so CSIS has done a, a great job in putting out a translated chapter from the PLA National Defense University's 20 of 20 Science and Military Strategy, which is kind of this big picture teaching document that is used by the PLA to teach officers. And there's a chapter on strategic deterrence. And in that chapter, they talk about different types of military activities that one could employ to create a deterrent effect. And if you go down the list of different types of military activities uh, that the PLA academically talks about as being deterrence activities, and you compare that with what we're seeing in the Taiwan, the, in, around Taiwan right now, it, it looks very textbook. Unveiling advanced weapons is one of the categories. We see that, you know, we saw videos of J-20s, there's rumor of DF-17 hypersonic Glide vehicles being used in some of the test areas, some of their higher end H6 bombers. So we're seeing a lot of advanced weapons being shown off in video footage. So we're checkbox on that. Elevated combat readiness is another way that you can create a deterrent effect. And we saw that on 3 August, the PRC Ministry of National Defense issued a press release indicating that units were at, PLA units were at high alert. So checkbox on that. Military exercises, Eastern Theater Command, unveiled uh, a WeChat as well as other social media posts talking about how they're going to conduct military exercises around Taiwan. So we got that one. Military disposition changes to where your units are deployed. Uh, this one's probably a little more fuzzy, but there's a lot of videos running around Chinese social media right now of various pieces of military equipment being shipped around China. I think we've seen some ballistic missiles, uh, some armored vehicles, army units. So it's not coming out of official media, but I think the PLA knows this is out there and they're putting it out or they're sort of tacitly accepting that it's out there. Uh, so we got that one, we think. Information attacks, that's another category. We've seen the denial of service attacks, Taiwan websites. 
And then we have restrictive operations, which is ways at which you can constrain the adversary or the target nation through things like closure areas or, or test fires or military exercises that sort of create this sense of being constrained and closed in on. And that's what those closure areas that we saw go up around Taiwan are. Frankly, the only two categories we haven't seen are creating an atmosphere of war. And we haven't seen, at least I haven't seen any parts of China elevate elevate status into a wartime readiness status. I haven't seen much in the way of mobilization. And demonstrated strikes. And we haven't seen any missiles impact Taiwan or anything impact Taiwan. So we haven't gotten there. But these two are probably the most escalatory, if you will, or sort of at the far right end of the spectrum in terms of deterrent activities. We've checked all the other boxes. And so I think they're very clearly messaging to us that we are trying to create a deterrent-like effect of demonstrating our willingness to use force against Taiwan in, in an effort to bring it back into fold, if you will, and an attempt to create a sense of hopelessness, if you will, within Taiwan and maybe even to the United States. The extent to which that's working, I'm not so sure, but certainly the demonstrating their willingness to use force, I think a lot of this gets the message across. I think another thing that's interesting to note here is what isn't being talked about is how it appears much of the rest of the PLA outside of Eastern theater is kind of conducting business as usual. There's some indications that Southern Theater is conducting some operations in support of the Taiwan deterrence activities, but that's very peripheral. A lot of it's just business as usual. If you look at reporting out of Western Theater Command, Northern Theater Command, Central Theater Command, it's very sort of vanilla discussion about day-to-day military activities. They're reposting the Taiwan, sort of the Eastern Theater Command Taiwan-related activities, but they're not doing anything on their own. So this seems very restricted to Eastern Theater in terms of units involved in geographic scope. So I think that's an interesting component that really just demonstrates a certain amount of restraint that they, they, the PLA, are trying to message. Another, and sort of another thing to note with these activities is that the CCP, Xi Jinping specifically, has very little incentive to rock the boat right now, if you will. Yes, there's a domestic and international impetus to res- demonstrate resolve, which is what they're doing right now. But there is a 20th Party Congress coming up. Most of the major decisions have likely been determined at this point. Those are usually made, the big sort of big picture decisions are made well ahead of the actual Party Congress that occurs in November. So a lot of that has already been resolved, but there's still a strong impetus to not rock the boat, not really create any major incidents until after the 20th Party Congress is resolved and Xi Jinping gets his reappointment as party secretary. So the PLA, the CCP, kind of has to respond to the Pelosi visit. They're responding in a very textbook way, but in many ways are demonstrating... Is this unprecedented scale? Yes. In fact, they use the phrase unprecedented scale. But they also call it a military pressure activity or military deterrence activity, however you want to translate the Chinese into. And they're showing a certain amount of restraint. So I would be very surprised if this escalates into what they would classify as a military confrontation or even an armed conflict. They're doing what they have to do in response to what we, the United States, felt like we had to do. So uh, I don't think we should at all be surprised about what they're doing right now. But that doesn't mean that we should forget about this in a couple of months. 
This is going to linger large in the back or the front of their heads. This is another few drops of water or maybe a few cups of water in the figurative bucket in their mind about how bad things are going for Taiwan. And at a certain point, they'll say things are bad enough that we have to use more military force to either reverse the trend or stop the trend altogether. And this is going to contribute to this, and it's not going to be forgotten quickly. So we can't just move on in September or October or in 2023. We can't just forget that this occurred and do a reset in our minds because they certainly didn't do a reset in their minds. Um, so I think that's the dynamics at play right now and in the future, this isn't just going to go away. This is going to factor into subsequent military activities they conduct, subsequent political activities they conduct months, years from now. Rod, I do want to push you a little bit about how this could escalate. So I know I've been asking you about how the PLA might respond, but could you see if there were any activities that Taiwan takes to push back against the PLA that this could escalate in some way? Or do you think that PLA has taken significant precaution that they won't engage in activities at which the Taiwans could push back? There's always a, a possibility for things to escalate. I'm not a Taiwan expert, but I suspect that Taiwan has very few incentives to escalate. They understand the CCP arguably better than we do. They understand that this is something that the CCP has to do. So uh, do they have to do something in response? I'm sure there's a political impetus to do so. But it's possible that there could be an incident. My suspicion is that any incident that Taiwan, the PRC, or the United States instigates that appears to be escalatory at this time, maybe, or I would even say likely would be an accident that is caused by local interpretation of guidance. And I think I, I sort of highlighted this potential early on in some of the coercive activities that PLA was conducting. If higher headquarters says be more confrontational, but don't provide additional guidance, in your local unit commander or your local operator has a particular way of interpreting that, if all the stars align, that could result in an incident that is escalatory. So we could see, it is not out of the realm of possibility of a local incident occurring. But let's say a, a collision in the air or at sea or something like that. Let's say that happens. Yes, that's very escalatory and there's a risk that it could push us further towards an armed conflict. But there are strong incentive structures on literally all three parties to not escalate that situation. And I think we've seen instances, at least with the U.S. and China, deliberately not escalating situations because they have very little incentive to do so, especially on the Chinese side. I don't think they see themselves as a first mover here. They don't perceive themselves as having the initiative, which is something they want if they want to escalate. Uh, I don't think Taiwan feels like it has the initiative here. So... The incentive structure, in my view, just isn't there for it to spiral out of control. But I could see a local incident occurring that might raise a few eyebrows. Some people might lose some sleep over it, I'm sure. In fact, I'm sure Taiwan uh, MND is already losing sleep. But in terms of that spiraling out of control, I don't particularly see that in the cards right now. Great, thank you. So and if, I did want to ask you one last question. As you observe the PLA continue to execute its exercise in the next couple of days, what are you paying the most attention to? What are you most interested in seeing? Or in terms of for analytical value, for your understanding of the PLA? So I think in the short term, 
luckily, I think a lot of the work is already being done in terms of getting a detailed look at who is involved in, in these exercises, the nuances to which the PLA can create effects. Uh, so one of the examples is that the closure areas that they were firing missiles into were much closer to, in fact, may have infringed on Taiwan territorial waters, 12 nautical miles. That did not occur in the 96 crisis. That may actually have something to do with the PLA feeling more confident with the accuracy of missiles. If you feel pretty confident, you can put it right at 12 nautical miles today, and you probably didn't have that confidence, you, the PLA, probably didn't have that confidence in 1996. And so I think some of the nuances about how they're able to fine-tune responses, not just on the conventional side, on the, on the cyber side or the network side too, that wasn't an option to them 25 years ago. It's an option. Uh, so looking at how all the different fine-tuned ways they do things is, I think, particularly interesting as a way of understanding textbook is one thing, how do they actually execute it is another. Another component that I think is really fascinating and probably is somewhat underexplored is how they're messaging all of this. This is all being fed through public outlets, PLA, social media, press, and they frankly expect Western public press, media, social media, all that to pick it up and sort of spin it to help build the narrative. That's all part of their design, I think. And so trying to understand the mechanics of how what we like to call anecdotally three warfares, right? Uh, public opinion warfare being one of them. How are they doing this? I think that's a really, this is a really fascinating case study of how that's all being implemented. So that's in the short term is we get to unpack how the PLA conducts deterrent activities uh, and operates in the information domain in this sort of still peacetime but approaching confront military confrontation phase of their spectrum, use of force spectrum. So that I think is particularly interesting and what I'll be looking out for. Down the line, and I hope especially the scholars in this field don't just drop this topic because it's no longer the hot button topic of the of the week or the month is that we'll likely see a lot more insight into the inner workings of what was going on a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. And so understanding internally what their decision calculus was to respond the way that they did, I think we'll get glimmers of that in the coming months and years. And that we use the third Taiwan Strait crisis, the second, the first Taiwan Strait crisis as case studies of how do we do, or how does the PRC respond to such incidents? What is the dynamic that occurs? We're watching that happen now, but we won't get complete data for months, if not years. And so I think that long-term component is also going to be of great interest of, if we're gonna engage in this long-term competition with China, this is a great, way to study how that dynamic occurs. Uh, we shouldn't just be looking at the nuances of closure areas. We should be looking at the nuances of internally, what are they saying or what are they saying? What are they not saying? What are the internal dynamics? I think all of that is of particular import. And so I would really encourage folks to, to keep an eye out for that, even after these closure areas are sort of lifted, even after the exercise end, there's still a lot to it. And I think that's what matters most on, on monitoring what's going on. Thank you, Rod. Thank you for such a rich and fascinating discussion. Thank you for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again.